the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. As we head into hour two, excuse me, sorry about that. It is a delight to bring back uh, my new friend, Josh Hammer. He is the opinion editor at Newsweek, a syndicated columnist. You can follow him on Twitter at Josh underscore Hammer. And in his most recent piece in Newsweek, Moral Clarity versus Moral Depravity, Depravity in Israel and Gaza, I wanted to get him on, especially given the headlines today that there looks to be an agreed ceasefire in the conflict with Gaza. Josh Hammer, welcome back to the Airwaves of Phoenix. Thanks for joining us. You bet. Anytime, Seth. Thank you, sir. Let me uh, start with what I found uh, to be the most interesting of this uh, week-long exercise in confusion and repetition. I can come back to that in a second. And it's what you say at the end of your column, Josh. Um, There's a lot in this. I'll read you your words and let you explain. The American left and the media organs it controls are exporting their paroxysms of 1619 Project Rage onto a foreign stage, expiating their white guilt sins and armchair quarterbacking a foreign conflict on a coast blade just board. It's great writing, by the way. Unpack it. There's a lot in there. Yeah, no, I'm happy you slided that. That was... If I'm being honest, that was a sentence in the article that I was most proud of. It's a great sentence. Um, we should actually put it on. We, we do this from time to time. We we cut out great sentences and put them up on our window. Bill, let's do that one. That's a, that's a great sentence. Yeah, Go ahead. Sorry, Josh. No, thank you, Seth. Um, so, look, what is happening here, what is happening in the present conflict is I don't think you can separate the increasingly hysterical, the increasingly one-sided, the increasingly overt support for genocidal jihadist Islamist terrorist groups that we are seeing from um, the far left and increasingly maybe even the quote-unquote center-left. You cannot divorce that from kind of the wokeization, the 1619 projectification that has happened domestically over the past few years. I think what's happened, um, I mean, this is, this is a long time coming. It really it goes back at least to kind of the first Women's March, which is, you know, the day that Trump was inaugurated in 2017. It's kind of continued, obviously, to the Black Lives Matter protests turned to riots um, and all that horribleness from, from last year. And just the intersectional theme, the multiculturalism that imbues the modern left, they see everything from a perspective of, hierarchies of oppression, of hierarchies of privilege. And I, I think that they're they're taking that framework and they're very sloppily and haphazardly applying it. Um, like I said in the article, on a foreign chessboard, on a, on a foreign conflict that these people, frankly, for the most part, know very little, if anything, about. And in this ridiculously oversimplified, dumbed-down narrative, the narrative that they've taken from the 1619 Project, from Black Lives Matter, from critical race theory and intersectionality and multiculturalism, they look at the Palestinians and 
specifically in this case Hamas, which again, just to like reiterate this very basic point, is a genocidal terrorist group whose founding charter calls for the murder of every Jew in the world. But they look at Hamas and they say that they are quote unquote brown, so they must be George Floyd, they must be oppressed, and we have to support them. And by extension, Israel in this ridiculously dumbed down, oversimplified, and frankly just outright false uh, dichotomy is quote unquote white. They are the oppressor here. You know, it, 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 in, in the left mind, they are kind of a colonialist European Western style oppressor. I mean, never mind the fact that Israel's Jewish population is plurality Mitrahi, so it's plurality Jews coming from the Middle East. So they, you know, they, their actual skin color is frankly much darker than than most European Ashkenazi Jews. But you know, hold that aside. Um, that's kind of what I was trying to get at the sentence. They're basically taking this ridiculously dumbed-down, toxic domestic narrative, and they're just trying to export it into a foreign conflict that they frankly know nothing whatsoever. It's not a mistake, though, Josh, is it? Uh, I, I love I, what I'm about to do because I can't wait for your response, knowing uh, political philosophy as you do. It's not a mistake, is it, Josh Hammer, that so much Marxist doctrine in America – is on the same side and infusing the defense of Hamas in Gaza. To wit, you had mentioned the BLM movement. In the BLM marches, there was an awful lot of talk about uh, divestment uh, from Israel. There was an awful lot of shouting on behalf of Palestine in the BLM movement last year here in America on the streets. Um, And even today, uh, the most vociferous critics of Israel and supporters of Hamas are self-declared socialists at minimum, the squad plus Bernie Sanders. Uh, Isn't it interesting that there's so much Marxism fueling the support for the Palestinian cause, not only here and in our social movements and political parties here in America, but in a sense going back to the entire perversion of what animates them globally, issues of race, colonialism, and imperialism, which is really what Khrushchev used to right get third world countries on his side, um, and inverting everything about race and imperialism, racism and imperialism, such that Israel is the racist and the imperialist and the colonialist. And once Israel is the racist, in Soviet, Russian, Marxist speak, so too are they the enemy for the Marxists in America here. I think this campaign, in other words, has been going on for some time. Oh, yeah. No, no doubt about that. I mean, you can go to, I mean, you can literally go back, as far as Paul Marx himself, you can literally go back to the intellectual, or as the case may be, pseudo-intellectual foundations of, of, of Marxism itself. I mean, Karl Marx, of course, was the... You know, he was uh, he was uh, ethnically, uh, legally Jewish. I mean, he was the grandson, if I recall, of an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. Uh, Karl Marx ended up being one of the you know great self-hating Jews of uh, of, of this millennium, um, and and, and he, he harbored immense kind of self-hatred here. Um, and we, we, more generally, though, um, I think I think what's actually happening on 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 the left contemporarily, I think what's happening in terms of kind of this this intersectionality, this critical race theory. And I'm probably the first one who who makes this point. 
it actually is just another form of Marxism. Um, right. The original Marxism, of course, which you know turned into Leninism and Maoism and all its various kind of manifestations, was obviously based on economics. It was based on uh, you know division of um, human beings based on class. Class explained yeah, history. Class, class explained and everything, and the Nazis just took it and made it race. Right? Yeah, I, I, I mean. The Soviets, obviously, the proletariat, the plebeians. I mean, we kind of saw that in the Occupy mm-hmm. Wall Street movement, yep. right? Which, right. Is kind of, which, 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 which is kind of a blip in the radar yeah. historically at this point. But, right. um, you know, I mean, uh, my Edmund Burke Foundation colleague, Yoram Brazoni, had a really great essay at Claire Lehman's Quillette website last August. Uh, the, the essay was called The Challenge of Marxism. Mm-hmm. And you know, Yoram's a political philosopher by training, and he kind of goes in and, like, uh, and, and he theoretically breaks down what Marxism's central claims are, you know, oppressor versus oppressed, false consciousness, the revolutionary reconstitution of society, and, you know, ultimately the total disappearance of any kind of class hierarchies in general. And he basically says that if you look at what the current kind of Black Lives Matter intersectional left is saying, it's the exact same thing. Um, they, they, they just talk about it with slightly different substance in the middle. They're not talking about in terms of um, uh, of money. They're talking about it um, in, ter- in, in terms of, uh, quote-unquote, equity, right? To kind mm-hmm. of use the Ebron mm-hmm. Kennedy, Robin mm-hmm. D'Angelo uh, uh, rhetorical lingo. Mm-hmm. So it actually is the exact same thing. You know, I mean, Ecclesiastes says that nothing new is under the sun, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, 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 kind of what, that's kind of what's going on here. I mean, obviously, during the Cold War itself, right? I mean, it's not an accident. That um, the PLO with Yasser Arafat ended up being, you know, effectively an invention of the Soviets. Effectively, I mean, Palestinian nationhood effectively ended up being an anti-Zionist ploy of this Leninist Soviet regime. And that's not an accident. It's all based on the same underlying intellectual precepts. And war against an intellectual as well as political. Uh, an armed struggle against, I think we can say, the West. I mean, it's not an accident, you're right, that not only did uh, Yasser Arafat and the Palestinian cause throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s uh, side with the Soviet Union, which, as you say, it was an invention of, um, so two terrorist organizations. There's this weird thing they... Uh, I'm sorry, terrorist organizations. I didn't mean so two terrorist organizations. I meant so two... Um, um, Arab nationalist countries, uh, so too um, African anti-colonialist Marxist movements, right? I mean, this was this was an entire effort against the West that was born out of a Marxist concept, but shares another thing interestingly with Marxism too, Josh, um, and it's particularly acute when it comes to Israel, and that is the issue of anti-Semitism within that anti-even- um, Zionist perspective, where people try and divide it to make it sound, I suppose, more respectable. Can we talk a little bit about that when we come back on the other side? Absolutely. Thank you. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Josh Hammer. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Syndicated columnist and opinion editor for Newsweek, Josh Hammer is our guest, and uh, we're talking about his most recent piece in Newsweek, but really uh, attaching it to the news of the day, his piece, Moral Clarity versus Moral Depravity in Israel and Gaza. We were talking about many of the Marxist roots 
uh, that kind of divide the sides here, uh, Josh, between the Palestinian support, uh, Palestinian cause support and Israel support. But there's another thing in this Marxist, um, uh, uh, what should we say, world of Marxist thought here, I suppose, that has come up um, and has come up ever since Karl Marx uh, was on the public stage, and that is strong degrees to virulent degrees of anti-Semitism in this argument, yes? Oh, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, look, uh, we're, we are increasingly seeing, I mean, what started out maybe a week ago or so as just unhinged statements from the squad, the AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, you know, I mean, I, I mean, uh, over the weekend, uh, AOC joined her far-left colleagues there in calling Israel a quote-unquote apartheid state. By the way, the real apartheid entity is it's literally by definition not a state, but the actual apartheid entity here is the Palestinian Authority, which considers it a capital offense for a Palestinian Arab to so much as sell property to a Jew. That's there, literally a capital offense in Palestinian Authority territory. So think about who the actual apartheid regime mm-hmm. is here. But um, what, you know, what started out is that these, uh, frankly, disgusting tweets a, a week ago. I mean, we're, what we're seeing before our eyes right now, we're, we're seeing pogroms. That I, I don't think that's overstating the case here. We are literally seeing pogroms that are playing out right now in the United States, whether it was in Los Angeles that they, where the Palestinian activists came to beat up diners at a sushi restaurant, literally asking the diners there who is Jewish and proceeding to you know, beat the crap out of them. We saw this in New York City, something shockingly similar happened. The scenes out of Europe, out of London, and of the UK are genuinely horrifying. And perhaps most horrifying of all is that this is happening in Israel itself. It's happening in the Jewish state, in the city of Lod. You know, any number of synagogues were burned down. A, a, a Jew who was lynched by uh, Arabs in Israel, in Israel, simply for being Jewish, if, if I remember correctly, succumbed to his wounds and tragically has passed away. Um, this is, it, it's horrifying. I mean, I, I just don't have a, a, enough words in the dictionary to express just my visceral disgust at, at what we're seeing here. But, you know, um, my deputy opinion editor in Newsweek, Badi Angar Sargan, had a really fantastic tweet earlier today. She said, if I can just read her tweet, she said, if you blame the violent attacks against Asian Americans on Trump calling COVID this Chinese virus, but you can't see how Congresswomen accusing Israel of terrorism might result in Jews being attacked by pro-Palestinian mobs, you either can't think or you have a problem with Jews. Wow. And I think that's basically what's happening here. Wow. And, and, and what's further interesting, Josh, uh, and this will be, you know, maybe work for you or someone like Joe Concha or someone who understands and studies the media more, what's really interesting is in a media, shall we say, uh, fascination of things like bias crimes, uh, race crimes, uh, hate crimes, the attack, this horrific attack that you described that took place in Los Angeles, was it yesterday, I think, combined with the attacks in New York City and D.C. and Seattle and Florida, um, they're getting no coverage. I mean, very little coverage. Fox is about it. Which is itself just disgusting. I mean, it's it's uh, it's just unbelievable. I mean, Donald Trump, who, for my money, for what it's worth, was uh, I mean, by far the most pro-Israel president since Israel was founded in 1948, likely the most 
genuinely pro-Jewish philo-Semitic president uh, possibly ever. I mean, at least since kind of Abraham Lincoln famously spoke of America as a, quote, almost chosen people, right? I mean, going back at least 150 years. Uh, he, he was, Donald Trump, it says, was tarred and feathered all the time by people who were accusing him of, you know, white nationalist, white supremacist, anti-Semite. I mean, I, I, despite all of his myriad accomplishments, despite the fact that he had an Orthodox Jewish daughter, et cetera, et cetera. And now, under the anointed successor, um, a, a, a Democrat who defeated Trump, we are seeing violence in the streets of America against Jews, the likes of which we have, uh, to my knowledge, not ever seen, literally not ever seen on the scale. It seems like it's currently happening over the past week or two. And the same people who were so quick to criticize Donald Trump are nowhere to be found. At best, at worst, they're helping to incite this with their ridiculous, over-the-top smear campaigns on Twitter, on CNN and whatnot. It's really just quite appalling. You know, I have to tell you, Josh, uh, I'm, I'm fairly uh, numb. Is that the right word? It's, it's uh, used to, inured um, to violent imagery <clears throat> you probably are too uh having you know just studied and written and lived in in this world as as as, as we both have and I, I i just put in twitter uh, a search term of jews attacked united states <clears throat> and the top hits are stomach churning and 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 any number of these videos would have you know been as um interesting i would think for the media to play is that which they played about the police um, when the police pull someone over. Um, this this is this is astonishing violence that you can see taking place with people in Arab kafiyas against Jews in Manhattan, um, in uh, Los Angeles. It's uh, uh, Upper East Side Manhattan in Los Angeles. It's it's really stomach churning. It's amazing the media is not on this. It's amazing this is all only covered, frankly, by amateurs. It's just, it, it literally just shows you in like visceral, clear terms how little the, the, the you know, large swaths, the majority that is, of the corporate media, um, which obviously are almost exclusively, you know, music, music opinion pages, perhaps an exception, mm-hmm. exception, but almost exclusively just um, an, an, an outlet of a, a voice, a propaganda voice for the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party ruling class interests. It shows how little they care for Jews, for Jews qua Jews, for Jews who live as Jews. And I think it's worth noting as well, um, admittedly, you know, it hasn't been happening long enough to collect a big data set. And, you know, thank goodness for that. Thank God that we don't have enough data to paint kind of a comprehensive statistical analysis. But based on kind of the few anecdotal uh, and horrifying, to be clear, but anecdotal, a little bit horrifying images that we've seen, it seems like it's happening in blue urban enclaves. Yes, right? it does. I mean, this is, Correct. I mean, this is, this is not happening, you know, in Tennessee, Alabama. Wyoming, well, I think it's, you're right. Well, I think because in, in part it's left-wing violence, right? I, I think so, yeah. Exactly. Marxist-inspired left-wing violence, and uh, not for the first time in the major streets of America in the last year. Josh Hammer, great for you to check in with us. I I really appreciate it. Always enlightening. Uh, So glad to have uh, have you as a uh, hopefully soon-to-be-regular. When can we give you regular status? After three visits, I think we can call you a regular, Josh. Thank you, sir. Anytime. We'll talk to you soon. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Your show here on out, 602-508-0960. I was mentioning in the last hour the campaign we started talking about in the most serious earnestness I can remember in a long time in talking about corporations and boycotts. Serious conversation started about it in our movement, didn't it, about three weeks ago. Uh, Coca-Cola, of course, and American Airlines, and Nike, always Nike, weighing in on um, the politics of a state of Georgia, the politics in the state of Georgia that they simply did not understand any further than beyond what their woke advisors told them, where the default is that if Republican, racist. Well, as Steve Hayward blessedly uh, shows us We're fighting back, and Consumers Research has issued a set of uh, 30-second spots calling out these corporate virtue uh, signalers like Nike and Coca-Cola and American Airlines for their blatant hypocrisy and grandstanding. Um, It's worth listening to these three. And I will tell you that the result is actually starting to come in. Bill, do you have the first one? Is it Nike? Let's hear it. Nike is constantly political. Why? Cover. Congressional reports suspect Nike used forced labor in China. Religious minorities were ripped from their families, sterilized, sold to factories. Nike made shoes in those same areas. Congress tried to ban Nike's labor practices. Nike fought back with highly paid lobbyists. Rather than hiring Americans, Nike chose China. John Donahoe, Nike. Stop exploiting foreign labor. Serve your customers, not woke politicians. By the way, I have to tell you, there are graphic visuals that go with this. They're very good, showing numbers and sources. Sources, darn credible. Is the next one Coca-Cola? I think it is. Let's hear that one. Coca-Cola is getting political, attacking Georgia's popular voting law. Why? To distract from years of dismal sales, terrible 2020 results, reports suspecting they benefited from forced labor in China. Coca-Cola products are poisoning America's youth and worsening the obesity epidemic. So the company tried funding phony science to minimize the harms, but they got busted. James Quincy, Coca-Cola, stop poisoning our children. Serve your customers, not woke politicians. And then finally, the last one, Bill. American Airlines rated the worst, losing the most bags, shrinking legroom during COVID. American requires passengers to show ID to fly, but attacks Texas's popular voter ID law. Why is CEO Doug Parker trying to appease the radical left? To distract from billions in taxpayer bailouts, from his $10 million payday, from Americans' record layoffs. Doug Parker, American Airlines, serve your customers, not woke politicians. Uh, I said that these had generated early uh, dividends, and indeed over at RealClearPolitics.com, we have this uh, wonderful headline, Coke tempers its politics, sorry, let me do it again. Coke tempers its politics amid woke capitalism ad campaign. Despite its recent foray into divisive politics, it appears the country's most iconic soda company still wants the majority of Americans to have a Coke and a smile. Uh, The conservative group's $1 million ad campaign, we just played some of it, 
um, against what it considers woke capitalism seems to be having an impact, at least in the case of Coca-Cola and its executives' desire to lower the political temperature. The ads, which pointedly criticize several CEOs on a range of issues, you've heard them, childhood obesity to endowing and supporting China's uh, forced labor camps, are aimed at trying to curb corporate boards taking political sides on such controversial issues as voting rights. The first round of ads called out Coke, American, and Nike for siding with Democrats in recent legislative fights. As the ads began running this week on Fox Business and CNBC, we reached out to Coca-Cola for a comment and, get this, quote, Coca-Cola spokesman told Real Clear Politics, we respect everyone's right to raise their concerns and express their views, and we believe the best way to make progress now is for us all to come together to listen respectively, respectfully share concerns and collaborate on a path forward. We remain open to productive conversations with groups who may have different views. That's a good first step. Now just stop buying their products. And let's add Facebook to it, too. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Did you know foam roofs here in the Valley are a great option for many homes? That's where my friends at Trades Unlimited excel. They're there for all your roofing work, and they do great jobs on all. They're promoting their work on foam roofs right now, giving the timing and how good it is right now weather-wise for foam recoats. Foam roofs help insulate from extreme Arizona heat, also from exterior noise, and most importantly, from water leaks. I know the folks at Trades Unlimited. I've gone down to their offices and headquarters. I can honestly tell you, more than impressed with these people, much more. Great people, great work ethic, quality of craftsmanship is what they stand by. Quality and service. That's what you'll come to know with Trades Unlimited. As I said, now is perfect weather for foam recoats. Protect your roof before the foam beneath the coating gets compromised. Don't wait until it's too late. Call my friends over at Trades Unlimited at 480-483-1775. That's 480-483-1775. Or find them online at tradesunlimited.com for all your roofing needs. Have you know been struggling <clears throat> with the egress from COVID and the issue of accountability and uh, will there be any for uh, the uh, slings and arrows we were thrown to uh, in, um, in uh, the mediation efforts that we were lectured to um, that if we didn't abide by would put fellow Americans and the rest of the world at greater risk. And so we shut down schools, the economy, and all the rest of the story that you know. We did so knowing because we had to know because the research was beyond peradventure. We did so knowing there would be a social – a level of social fallout, not from the disease – but from the reaction to the disease. We knew that radically changing, dramatically disrupting children's social and educational, athletic, after-school uh, lives 
would have severe consequences. It was an experiment we had not engaged in before. And that's the problem with massive social experiments on children. They almost always have baleful consequences. We did this knowing that would be the case, thinking the disease and protecting from it was better than what would happen to children if we disrupted their lives. But we didn't just stop at children. We stopped at the working age males and females of this country in too many states that shut down their businesses. And we did this full well knowing because the social science and the literature knew and had lectured to us beyond peradventure that economic loss and disruption, especially radical and sudden, can lead to all kinds of psychological problems, including drug addiction, substance use, in other words, relapse, and um, suicide. So we shut down houses of faith where people go to sustain their souls and work on improving their capacity to take pain and painful news. And we shut down recovery meetings, making it all the harder for people clinging on to an often thin reed of sobriety against a lot of, shall we say, competition to that sobriety. Now we've robbed them of those meetings as we've robbed them of their jobs. So we knew, we knew these things would happen. What some in public policy who engaged in these things and touted them and defended them and promoted them, the equation they made was those social and psychological outcomes will be better than not treating COVID the way we're treating COVID. We haven't even gotten into the damage done to children with masks. So we knew there would be these things. And then the debate would be around what's worse, the remediation efforts or the disease. And we refused to engage in the kinds of things Professor Markey of Johns Hopkins, McCary, sorry, Professor McCary of Johns Hopkins, was talking about early, early, early on, as early back as March of last year, which was sequestering vulnerable populations. It could have been done. By the way, that population was not zero to 20. It didn't affect schools. That population didn't affect nursery schools any more than it affected high schools any more than it would affect a double-masked vaccinated person, I suppose. Um, we made those bets. And I think the data is coming in now that the lockdown mentality was the wrong bet. Especially when you see the kind of numbers crunching that Lewis Hallman does to find that the death toll from COVID in America might very well be inflated by as much as 50% compared to the way other countries in the developed world are counting COVID fatalities. So I wondered, would there be accountability? Would there be apologies? Would there be restitutions beyond these blunderbuss attempts 
at stimulus? And here's the answer. It's a strange one. I didn't see it coming. Denial is the answer. Denial. Invincible ignorance is the phrase we've used here before. It comes from Catholic theology. Invincible ignorance is the um, inability to appreciate any fact or truth irrespective of how much evidence there is behind it. Imagine putting your fingers in your ears when someone's talking to you and singing the alphabet song or something while you yell, I can't hear you. That's invincible ignorance. Um, there are those who will take everything we have said and, 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 and now have melded. You know that's the proper use of the word meld. Review. Reveal. Show. Reveal and show. Not blend. Okay? It's not weld. come back to that. Um, now that the effects have been melded, shown, revealed, we get columns like this from the L.A. Times. L.A. Times, nation's third, fourth most important paper. L.A. Times. Um, it had an op-ed today, an op-ed today denying that there were any problems with the lockdowns at all. Did lockdowns write the column, one writer asked. It was so defensive of them, saying that there were no economic losses and no public health deficits from the stay-at-home orders in Los Angeles. I'll tell you more about it in just a moment. COVID lockdowns saved lives without harming the economy is the title of it. Invincible Ignorance. I don't know how much of you have seen the <laughs> that was a funny thing to see. <laughs> what were you doing? Looking up the word meld? Is that what you were doing? Okay. Bill has a music list of his five hundred top rock and roll songs. Bill likes to make lists. Sounds like a children's book. <laughs> Bill likes to make lists. Bill has a list of five hundred great music songs. He revises it every year. I don't know how good it is, but I can tell you this, it lacks an amazing amount of depth when nine out of the top 14 songs are Rush songs. You can't have nine out of the top 14 songs be Rush songs, Bill. That's not... Do you have Crosby, Stills, and Nash, anything by them on there? No, you do not. Do you have... Eric Clapton, no, you do not. Meatloaf, no, you do not. Eagles, no, you do not. How this is in any, those, all of them, huge crowd pleasers and topping the lists of any Rolling Stones top sales, top album sales, everyone I just mentioned. You have none of them. None of them. None of them. Paradise by the Dashboard Light. I like that one. You like it. It's not on the list. It might be. It isn't. Have you seen it? It's a joke of a list. And it's going nowhere. This is what I. Does this is, Do you just do this to soothe yourself? If you'd like me to play this game, I will. I've done it before. I recommend that everyone make your own top 500 songs list. It's I've fun. done it. It's here. We have it. It's called my bumper music. Of huh. course. 
Tucker Carlson last night did a great job, a great job in going off on in criticizing, explaining and criticizing um, the Nuremberg ethics of Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot in now deeming who she will and who she will not give a one on one interview to. Do you know who she what she is doing to decide? I mean, it's tough. You're the Chicago mayor. You get inundated. It's a big city with a lot of interview requests from journalists. Do you know how she's deciding who she'll grant a one-on-one interview with? Is it the reporter who's won the most journalism awards in Chicago? Is it the one who's been on the city beat, the mean streets beat, the longest? Is it um, reporters who she finds political agreement with? And give her a fair shot and a fair shake from her perspective. No, it is none of the above. You know what it is? Race. That's why I called it the Nuremberg Ethics of Chicago. If you're black and a journalist in Chicago, you get a one-on-one interview. She said as much, as did her press secretary. If you're white, you don't. I'll tell you about that when we come back, too. We'll be right back.